Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a scorching spring morning here in the capital is Ben Shepherd. Ben is the Managing Director of Savvy Media and Digital Recruitment, a London-based recruitment company that is passionate about placing quality candidates that reach the high standards and work practice similar to its own. Uh, ben, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and thank you ever so much for joining us on the show. Hi Scott, thanks so much for having me. What a lovely day. Oh, it is, isn't it? Certainly is a lovely day for it. And um, just sort of diverting from the weather for a moment, I think we should address the elephant in the room as we begin this discussion, Ben, and that's the fact that we are recording this discussion in early June 2021. And even though we are slowly moving out of social restrictions, we are still somewhat in the grip of the global COVID-19 pandemic, and we have been for the best part of the last 14 months. So with that in mind, to what extent has all of this affected you and your business, would you say? Oh, gosh, where do I begin? Well, firstly, I'm still here to tell the tale, which is the main thing. Um, How has it affected our business? Wow. Okay, so obviously last March, like everyone, it seemed, you know, what's what's going on? This isn't a normal recession. We're having to lock down. Um, It was all a mixture of nerves, um, fear, um, a bit of excitement as well, I'd say. You know, certainly from a staff, my staff's perspective, it's like, oh, we're going home, we're we're on furlough, or we're working from home, what's it all about? But then it is obviously it started to become more apparent that this is actually really, really serious. Um, then, uh, you know, kind of lost that it's less of excitement and more sort of fear crept in. Um, how has it affected our business? Well, we've had to furlough our staff for the best part of six months. Mm. We then had to let them go because we couldn't afford it. Um, and we are now slowly re- rebuilding as a business as well. Um, unfortunately, from a business perspective, we're in the media industry, and you probably tell from watching TV uh, this time last year, the lack of uh, content or new content and the amount of repeats that are on the TV um, tells you a little bit how much production was going on. Um, we also service a lot of the events industry as well, and obviously that was ground to a halt. So mm. um, how did it affect our business? Well, we went from pretty much um, on track for possibly our biggest year, February, March time, to basically hanging on for, for survival and, and almost having zero business um, a year ago. Um, and it's massively affected our business. We're, we're, start, we're starting again, essentially. Um, we, we've got two new starters in, so we're having to rebuild. We've had to let a lot of our, our staff go. and um, But we're back on track. We're here, and like I said, I'm here to tell the tale. So it's kind of one of those bittersweet ones. You know, We've had to reevaluate where we wanted to go as a business and, and set new goals and, and almost hit the reset button with so many people have to do. I can imagine having to make such difficult decisions when you're seeing sort of your business disappear overnight in a way. It means that you've had to have some quite difficult conversations with some quite anxious people, I could imagine. And given that the issue around mental health and well-being has been so amplified by the pandemic, I can imagine that was quite a difficult time. It really was. And 
it was a tough one because you know you're trying to support your your staff members who are technically on furlough, so you can't technically speak to them about anything work related. But you know, I would sort of call them up or, or drop them a text and just check how they are doing. Um, especially you know as we've come out of furlough and then we've had to go back into work. Um, so as people, I think Tony Robbins said, if you're not growing, you're dying. So we are gold with the people. We have. we need to have some sort of purpose in place. And from a business perspective. It's been tough because it's not like being a recession. We haven't been able to sort of forecast. We haven't been able to say, right, this is where we'll be in a year's time. This is what we'll be doing. No one knows. You know, you had the first wave, then you had the second wave. Even now they're talking about the third wave of the Indian variant. It's been so up in the air. Now it's got to the point where we're kind of coming out of it. There seems to be a lot more light at the end of the tunnel. People seem to have adapted through Zoom and working remotely. Um, so we have come that sort of 360. But from yeah, a mental health point of view, it's been really tough. I've had one one my you know one individual um, employee who has been with us for eight years, and it, it affected her. People have actually had to re self evaluate and think, you know, what do I want out of life? And I had a really good chat with her, and 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 regrettably we parted ways because she's kind of looked and, and, and realised this isn't what she wants out of her life, which I completely respect. And we have to say, do you know what? We want the best for you. You've got to have the best for yourself, and you have to think selfishly. And 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 reluctantly, you know, she she's passed away with us. But I wish her so well as well because it's so important that you know you're in a job for, for ten hours a day. You're sat alongside people more than you are your loved ones. You've got to be happy, and happiness is is, is so important, so important these days. So yeah, it's it's from a mental health perspective, it's been big, it's been really challenging. I mean, we're not a big business, but I know a lot of our our clients have had to put a lot of um infrastructure in place to make sure that staff well-being is looked after. Mm. And just sort of staying on topic a little bit there, something that we have been talking an awful lot about at the Leaders' Council, especially of late, is CEO burnout and the impact of stress on business leaders. And when you are at the head of a business, I suppose it is quite easy to get sucked into that mindset of, I have to be strong for everybody else. I have to look after everyone else's mental well-being because they're looking up to me as their leader, as it were. But then sometimes you can forget to sort of take that step back yourself as and when you need to, and that can also have an impact. So for yourself personally, Ben, do you find it easy to sort of step away from that hectic world of keeping the business afloat and being able to recharge the batteries as and when you need to, would you say? Yeah, I mean, funny enough, I actually reached out to a number of our Sort of competitor um, business owners during the time, and, and, and they're really receptive, and, and we kind of helped each other out a little bit by just giving some each other a bit of advice and just saying, you know, this is how we're finding it, this is what we're doing, which was really good. I think you really saw that that human element of, of sort of human compassion come out. You know what you know what people wear they are my competitors, and we are you know trying to take money out of their pockets and vice versa. There was an element of do you know what we just got to make sure everyone's okay. And I had lots of people reach out to me too, which was really kind. But thankfully, I've got a you know I've got a good wife at home, and, and she's really someone that I can bounce off and, and just have that sort of measured, controlled um, understanding, which is, which has been great. Um, physical activity, you know, I, I, during lockdown, I was going for runs um, mm. every day, and that helps massively. I think just clear the head. Um, but having a support mechanism. You know, if you've got someone that you can go to, whether it be a mentor or just a friend, then it certainly helps. Because you know, there were certainly dark times, and it's towards the end of the summer last year where, you know, essentially it was like a hole in the bucket. You know, we had um, no money coming in, 
and money coming out. And, and unfortunately, due to the, the rental value of our properties or our property that we're in, we couldn't um, get any business tax relief or business rates relief. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were contracted to advertising rates. We were contracted to rent um, as well as obviously um, other overheads as well. So we literally had a hole in the bucket. So it was a case of, well, if this carries on for much longer, we are going to have to eventually call it a day. Thankfully, that didn't happen. And, and towards the end of last year, we managed to turn it around and work with some great media clients that were, were able to give us some, some great business. But yeah, it's tough because you start self-evaluating. Like, much like my employee, you have to think, well, gosh, if this mm. doesn't happen and the business doesn't come back, what am I going to do? Um, and it's been tough. It's been tough for everyone. I've had you know people in the media industry who come to us on the phone in tears who, who've lost their job and just, what am I going to do? And I've had business owners that, I've known for 20 years who were, again, looking to achieve their biggest financial year in terms of turnover, actually go out of business. And it's absolutely um, tragic, absolutely tragic. And I know there's been dark periods for a lot of people, and it's just been a really tough time. And um, I think you have to show that human compassion to people. Um, mm. And it, if there's someone that you can reach out to, or like I said, some friend, some mentor, some body, then, then people have to do it because it's really, really tough because you don't want your thoughts running away with you. I think that's very right. And it has been such an immensely challenging time and quite a tragic time for so many. People have had to really pivot in order to keep their businesses afloat and sort of keep themselves um, in a good place as well. Um, but for the resilience that you showed in getting to this point, Ben, would you say that looking back on the last 14 months that you've learned something in your position from this experience that you've had? Yeah, oh, good question. What have I learned in the last 14 months? Well, I like to think that I need to put a new perspective on um, my work-life balance, 100%. Um, unfortunately, that's not quite the case at this moment in time because I am having to rebuild, so I am probably doing more hours than, than ever before. But I know once I get the business back up, I, I can't be doing that again. It's just not worth it. You know, you, you've seen... You've seen and hear of, of, of loved ones that have sort of passed away during this time because of COVID or, or other reasons. Reasons You just think, I just, you know, that old cliche, no one regrets on the deathbed not spending enough time in the office. And I think that really hit home. So I think creating a better work-life balance um, and also having that to knock on to the people that, that work for us, it's it, sadly. We always go by the mantra that if you are dreading going to work on a Sunday night, then you're in the wrong job. I don't want people going to, to bed on a Sunday night thinking, oh, I've really got to go to work. Everyone has that element of, oh, I've got to go to work tomorrow. I don't really want to. But if you are, oh, I just really don't want to go there, then you really are in the wrong job. And I really want to make sure, and I hit that home to the guys that work here, you, you've got to be happy. Because like I said previously, you sat alongside me for 10 hours a day. You, you know, I'm going to spend more time with you now than anyone else in my life. And I want you to make me a better person and I want to make you a better person. So I want to build you up. I want to bring the best out of you. I want to help you to grow. But I also want you to do the same for me. And that's kind of what I tell the guys here now. So, And that's something I'm, uh, from the, from the, like you said, what have I learned from the last 14 months? I really want to hit home on that and I really want to make sure that I bring out the best in people as best I can, as well as obviously trying to see my wife and kids a little bit more. 
Yeah, certainly that work-life balance element of it is incredibly important. And one thing that's really contributed toward that discussion over the last 14 months is the effect that home working has had. We're talking a lot more about the work-life balance and that flexibility. We're talking a lot more about time efficiency and sustainability as well from not having to travel to meetings and commute. So as a result of the pandemic, I think it is fair to say, isn't it, that the way we work and the way we do business in this country is going to be much changed in the long term. I think so. Absolutely. I mean, we, we do, um, we deal and, and place a lot of salespeople within media companies as well who, who sell advertising sponsorship or be around TV, radio, whatever it might be. And because companies haven't renewed leases on their properties, it's allowed people to previously have, who, who might have had to be based in London, they, they now have one guy said, well, that's it. I'm packing up. I'm going to Italy. I can buy a, a nice cheap place out there and as long as I've got Wi-Fi, I can still do the job. Well, that wouldn't, 14 months ago, that would not have been an option at all. So I think times have changed 100%. It, it, it's made people self-evaluate, re-evaluate how they do business and how they want to do business. We are um, a business which operates in place and staff. So our business, because we're media, is so driven by personalities. So we have to meet a lot of people. Now, our meeting room in our office is, is obviously was really busy previously. Now it's obviously it's rarely used. So it's a lot more over Zoom. It's a lot more over telephone, which is great because it allows us to get things done a little bit more quickly. Um, so we've had to adapt in that side of things. But, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think so many of my clients are getting rid of their offices, working remotely, and they're thinking, well, it's not hit our turnover. It's not affected that, so so we can do things remotely, and that's what we're going to do. Um, so it's going to it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting how it affects the city as well, the city of London, because obviously this is the, the hub for media for us as well. Mm. So so many businesses are, like I said, not renewing leases, um, which should be interesting too, because people do need that interaction, and people, especially that new talent that are coming up. Um, I was speaking to one client the other day, and we we're saying, "Gosh, I wonder what will happen in two or three years' time. Will there be a, 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 a golf in, in talent?" Um, because when you're starting out your career and you, you left school, you left university at 21, and you're starting certainly in our space, media, and you sit alongside someone who's been doing it 10, 15, 20 years, a lot of your learning and sort of business acumen and just the understanding of the world in general will become from and stem from sitting alongside Johnny who's been working in the industry for 20 years and he'll explain his life experiences. He'll mm. tell you, you know, what he's achieved, what he's done, his understanding. And because that person now is now working from home and they're not sat alongside Johnny, then they're not going to perhaps grow as fast as they could do in the office. So it'd be interesting to see how people will manage that aspect. And from someone that's looking, you know, my job is to find talent in the industry. It'd be interesting to see, if, you know, if we'd have this conversation in another 14 months time to see if yes we are really lacking talent because people are you know, that much but that much far behind uh, where they might have been had they been in the office day to day so you know, there's positives there's negatives for both sides but things are, are definitely changing and we are seeing a lot more remote work that's for sure mm. I think that point is an incredibly important thing to consider for any young graduates looking for work that are listening to this podcast or any young entrepreneurs as well because networking and making sure that you're surrounding yourself with people who are better than you to quote Nelson Mandela is so so important isn't it and you've mentioned already Ben that 
during this time of crisis, you've sought out the counsel of other business leaders, you've spoken to others, you've networked for advice and for reassurance and to share your experiences. And at this point in time, those younger up and coming people in any industry, going and seeking other people out, networking, that's the best thing that you can do, isn't it really? A hundred percent. I mean, you've got to get out there and network. Um, is getting out of your comfort zone as well. Um, it's obviously not as easy just because obviously you can't meet people face to face, or you obviously can now, but you haven't been able to. Um, but do what you can. Join some sort of institute. Um, network on social media. Um, look for business mentors. I know there's, um, there's, there's, there's businesses that are set up now to help you find a mentor. You can even pay for mentors as well. But um, or even family friends that you know be successful. Yeah, networking will help you grow massively, um, both as a person and, and as, as you said, a young young businessman, businesswoman, entrepreneur, whatever it might be. So, yeah, go out there and speak to people. You never know what might happen. I always encourage people to to go out there because I remember one guy wasn't interested in, in having a chat with with this person. I put him in touch with. Him. I said, well, look, go and have a chat with this person about this job. The job wasn't right for him. Lo and behold, he got on so well with him. Two years later, they actually set up a business together. So you just never know where a conversation might take you. And my advice is to people, and it is to my, it will be to my own children when they get of age, whether they're looking for jobs, have a conversation. You've got nothing to lose. And unfortunately, so many people don't see it that way. Um, but it really is like that. You know, you can, you can gain so much from people, meeting people. I think that's very sound advice indeed, Ben. And just before we do uh, wrap things up, just because I'm conscious that we are starting to run short of time this morning, I would like to sort of talk about the future and what's on the immediate horizon for yourself and for Savvy. Because um, we don't have a crystal ball, do we? Um, But we are sort of seeing some green shoots now. So where ideally would you sort of like the business to be maybe this time in a year as we hopefully move out of lockdown and leave the COVID situation behind, fingers crossed? Yeah, well, great question, Scott, and and, and I I'm full of optimism, and like I said, we've got a new start that happened it started yesterday, so they're in training at this moment in time. Um, we've just had a really good month as well. I say in a year's time, I, I like to um, hopefully um, had one of our best years. We're seeing some really good green shoots as well. I think I think the virus certainly the worst of it's behind us, and um, I, I as a business I like to be leaner and, and better than before. Um, and, and, and learn from the past as well. So not only um, is the business turning over more money, but also we've got a better um, atmosphere in the office and people are more positive than ever before and growing as well. You know, one thing we like to do is, is, is set people personal goals um, as well as business ones, but ones where they can achieve things in their own personal life. And this is something I really want to implement this year as well. So from a, from a business point of view in the next year, I'm full of optimism. I think we'll have our best year yet, definitely. And as a business, I think we'll be better and bigger than before. Let's certainly hope so, uh, Ben, and let's hope over the uh, the coming months there are some really positive and successful stories to uh, to share on that front as well. And I even think that just given how eye-opening it's been having you with us today to sort of have a glimpse as to what's happening in the sector, that it would be great to catch up in a year's time and just see how things are taking shape and indeed how Savvy is getting on to. 
yeah, I'd love to. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful, Ben. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme today. A real pleasure for myself and I'm sure for the listeners as well. And uh, coming up next on the show today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Of course, he is a legend from his professional football career among West Ham United and Stoke City supporters, but he is most fondly remembered, of course, for that famous treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany back at the Old Wembley in 1966, which saw the nation lift its first and to date only World Cup. Um, that will be coming up on the show next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Hi, good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might, might last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, I get that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in in all sports and particularly in my sport so I want him to bury it and I'll be absolutely I will be as delighted as anybody in the, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my, uh, my achievements, about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand, we all know what happened the ball nestled in the top corner England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before haven't you yes I think people um, I, I've I, I recall exactly what's amazing I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game I knew the game was nearly finished I, as the ball came to me initially I was actually with my back to goal I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished 
So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game's nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game's nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans Tilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss it, it and it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game is unfinished, but that, that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this 
unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about Covington and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, uh, clever enough, technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. We're managing people, uh, different characters, and um, all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life, in my in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're sensible enough to learn from people who are 
uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach or what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during Absolutely. your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It was a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And so it's always a three play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined, this is absolutely true, we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the street. And uh, we were actually, but that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton on the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup, in many years in the back garden, and when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house, somewhere in Chelmsford, 
and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's, it's, uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed, and I was. Maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial w- with them, and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff, then, uh, almost at school living age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football, and I was pretty reasonably good. There was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or. Uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I had one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game funny. I filmed a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games uh, no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, 
the role of a goalkeeper, of course not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls and not just sitting balls at it. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Mac, for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's <laughs> And certainly, my wife was very surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson. 
which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight, and uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to to stay with me. What he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you'd been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of... Um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we it was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was... I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had so um, yes it, 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 the American experience was just fantastic I never saw it long term being over there that was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her Third daughter over there, so that was that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a. I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about I think a month, I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid, and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New, new kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that? you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And I always jokingly say, 
you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during, during my football career. And I think I, though I went into business for 20 years, I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, when you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad, and I felt that was and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.